you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. So, how do we start these things? (laughs) How do we start these things? We're so good at this. We've been doing this for for so long. Uh, Today, we are going to do another D&D article podcast because we enjoy the last one so much and we couldn't get through all the articles that we had collected and piled up for you guys. So the way that this works for our podcast today is instead of going through a medieval text and breaking it down for you, we have collected a bunch of scholarly articles with all the jargon and stuff that you guys don't want to have to read and mess with. So we read it, we found the coolest bits, and we're going to go through those with you so you can adapt those ideas and those medieval sort of facts and research into your games and your storytelling and whatever else you may be creating. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do today. Yes. And I believe we also have a patron shout out. Oh, yes, we do have a patron shout out to my dad. Thanks, Michael. That sounds weird. Thanks, dad, for being a supporter of the podcast love you very much and if you all all of our listeners whom we all love very much in a less filial way um (laughs) anyway (laughs) if you want to support the podcast uh we do have a patreon you can check out our patreon just by looking up the Mediculum podcast we have various levels So depending on what you would like to give, you can give different levels and get different merch, get different exclusive content based on those levels. So please check that out if you feel so inclined. We also have all of our social media. So we've got our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we have a Discord. And several people came over from the Scriptlock podcast. So welcome, welcome, everybody. We're glad to have you. And if you would like to be a part of the Discord, but you don't know how to get on it, because it can be a little bit convoluted, Just message us on any of our social media, message us on our little contact form on our website, whatever you want to do, and we will get you a link to jump on board and be a part of the community. Yes. There is a lot of interesting stuff on there. Although this will be outdated by the time I say it, uh, just last night, someone dropped a lot of info. I I believe it's our, our friend AC. Yes. Dropped a lot of information about uh, Japanese court magic. Which I found fascinating. And which is always one of our favorite themes, magic in general. So, yes. So thank you very much for that. Please come join. We love having you all geek out with us. So, with that said, shall we dive into our first article? Yes, we shall. And this one is yours that you're bringing to the table. Because last time we focused on all, all of mine that I dug up and hoarded away for years and years. Yes, this is one that I had actually found a while ago and had kind of wanted to do a special episode on the topic, but this is the only article I had. And then when we started doing the articles thing, I was like, oh, this would be perfect. So this is an article about animal trials. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm so hyped for this. Okay, I need to plug, before we even get into this, I need to plug a movie called The Advocate. It came out in the 90s. It stars Colin Firth, so all you Pride and Prejudice fans, please go watch this movie. It is absolutely wild. It's like you're on a drug trip the entire time. It is a feature film about animal trials where Colin Firth stars as a lawyer who has to defend a pig against a murder. That's all I have. (laughs) That's all you need to know. (laughs) I mean, what more do you want? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this 
is from a 1906 publication of Bugs and Beasts Before the Law by E.P. Evans. It can be found on Project Gutenberg if you want to read the whole thing, because it is, like I said, from 1906, so it's public domain. And it begins with the following anecdote, which I'm probably going to pronounce a lot of things wrong in, because it's happening in France. Yes. Of course. It's gotta be French. I think I've read this paper. I love this one. Does it talk about the bugs? It does talk about the bugs. Oh, yeah, then I know this one. Yes. Okay. It is said that Bartholomew Chassinet, a distinguished French jurist of the 16th century, made his reputation at the bar as counsel for some rats, which had been put on trial before the ecclesiastical court of Autun on the charge of having feloniously eaten up and wantonly destroyed the barley crop of that province. On complaint formally presented by the magistracy, the official or bishop's vicar, who exercised jurisdiction in such cases, cited the culprits to appear on a certain day and appointed Chassinet to defend them. In view of the bad repute and notorious guilt of his clients, Chassinet was forced to employ all sorts of legal shifts and chicane, dilatory pleas, and other technical objections, hoping thereby to find some loophole in the meshes of the law through which the accused might escape, or at least to defer and mitigate the sentence of the judge. He urged, in the first place, that inasmuch as the defendants were dispersed over a large tract of country and dwelt in numerous villages, a single summons was insufficient to notify them all. He succeeded, therefore, in obtaining a second citation to be published from the pulpits of all the parishes inhabited by the said rats. Zoe is making a lot of faces at all of this, I, but it's not coming across in the audio. I just adore all of this because if you were walking into this thinking like, this is absurd, didn't they know this was absurd? Yes, they absolutely did know this was absurd. They still went through with it. Right. And we'll get into why. Yes, we will get into why. It is actually completely internally consistent if you go along with certain assumptions inherent in like medieval thought. Mm-hmm. But yes, on its surface, it's completely ridiculous. Yes. At the expiration of the considerable time which elapsed before this order could be carried into effect and the proclamation be duly made, he excused the default or non-appearance of his clients on ground of the length and difficulty of the journey and the serious perils which attended it, owing to the unwearied vigilance of their mortal enemies, the cats, who watched all their movements and with fell intent lay in wait for them at every corner and passage. On this point, Chassinet addressed the court at some length in order to show that if a person be cited to appear at a place to which he cannot come with safety, he may exercise the right of appeal and refuse to obey the writ, even though such appeal be expressly precluded in the summons. The point was argued as seriously as though it were a question of family feud between Capulet and Montague in Verona or Colonna and Orsini in Rome. Anyway, Chassinet, it seems, wrote a text on the matter of prosecuting animals, which Evans discusses at some length. An important note is that he argued for the efficacy of the church pronouncing anathemas against animals, mentioning various legends of saints in which animals, plants, etc. were banished or punished for their supposed crimes. Which Christ actually did. If you'll remember, he cursed a fig tree for not bearing fruit and it withered on the spot. Now, take that as an allegory or in whatever way you will, but there is some ecclesiastical precedent for this and again we'll get into why that's important in terms of secular versus ecclesiastical law right but the, the fact that people believe that like yes this could happen is one of the assumptions that you have to accept in order to make the animal trials make sense is that <laughs> by the power of the church you can anathemize animals 
Yes. Okay, so for listeners who may be less familiar with the medieval church, do you want to go over anathema and excommunication and that stuff, or... Oh, dear. Um, I'm not super up on it myself, but we can we can at least, I think, lay the groundwork. So an anathema is... Well, first of all, it includes excommunication. Yes. It's like a formal uh, denunciation of something. It's like placing a curse on something. It's effectively a geish. Yeah. We've, we've talked about that before. But it has to be pronounced by the church, by the authority of the church, saying that... Uh, this thing is cursed, wrong. no good, rotten. <laughs> yeah, it, it is wrong. It is banned. If it's a person, it's excommunicated. If it's an idea, it's denounced. It's it's that sort of thing. Yeah, and thereby remember, because the society was so Christian centric and Christian focused, whoever was declared anathema or whatever idea was declared anathema or heresy or whatever. Those who propagated that idea or that individual would be ostracized. Yes. Which is a huge, huge social and personal consequence at this time. Right. Which is why excommunication was a much bigger deal back then than it is now. Yes. Because like now if you're excommunicated, it'll disrupt your religious life, but you can still live your secular life. But back in the day, if you were excommunicated, it basically ruined your life. Yeah, point blank. Uh, And incidentally, the fact that excommunication is inherent in anathema, if you anathematize something, you also excommunicate it, is where you get stories about like, ah, in the 13th century, the church excommunicated frogs. Isn't that (laughs) wild? As if frogs would go to church. No, they they anathematize them. And yes, that does include excommunication. Excommunication, yes. But basically, the idea is you, the church can curse something. Future Mac here. I'm sure that our description of what an anathema is is clumsy at best and inaccurate at worst, since neither of us are Catholic. So if any of you have some clarification or correction that you would like us to make, please let us know. And the church can, what's the word, perform miracles (laughs) that affect the, the... beasts and 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 plants of nature Mm -hmm. just like the saints right it's just you have the holy power of god and therefore you can enact such things yeah and some of the examples given which i i I quote is uh these these are from chassanet's text as summarized by evans thus he relates how a priest anathematized an orchard because its fruits tempted the children of his parish and kept them away from mass the orchard remained barren until, at the solicitation of the Duchess of Burgundy, the ban was removed. In like manner, the Bishop of Lausanne freed Lake Le Mans from eels, which had become so numerous as seriously to interfere with boating and bathing. On another occasion in the year 1451, the same ecclesiastic expelled from the waters of this lake an immense number of enormous bloodsuckers. I assume that's lampreys. Lampreys are leeches, yeah. Because lampreys are akin to eels, so it's probably the same sort of thing. Yeah, I'm not sure if... I want to say lampreys technically aren't eels. They're just shaped the same way. I think they're older. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I happen to know that because I was watching a playthrough of Endless Ocean 2. For those of you who have ever played that game, it's probably a very small minority. Anyway, ocean facts. Uh, But anyway, enormous bloodsuckers, which, yeah, could be lampreys or leeches. 
which threatened to destroy all the large fish and were especially fatal to salmon, the favorite article of food on fast days, and so forth. Like, he lists a bunch of examples. And so he's saying, like, look, if we accept, as it says in all these saints' lives, and as we have these records of people in living memory doing, that someone with the power of God behind them can, in fact, ban a category of animals from the area. Or, like, not even a category, but, like, a specific group. So, like, whatever that nest of rats was, or that horde of eels, or whatever. Right. Or snakes from Ireland. Whatever. Yeah, go figure. If we accept that that can be done, then it becomes perfectly reasonable to ask the church to do it. But it's equally reasonable that we can't just do it willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a trial. There has to be a trial. We have to establish... Justice. What's that? It's got to be justice. Yes, it has to be justice. We have to establish that it's warranted. And obviously the defendants in that trial are whatever is going to be anathematized, and they need a lawyer. Da-da-da-da! And therefore, you get animal trials. Yeah, like it all makes sense if you assume that the power of the church can, in fact, remove animals from an area. Which, in the medieval period, everyone assumed they could. Yes. Which, again... I'm going to go back to this idea that in the medieval world, the sort of spiritual world and the physical world or the actual world, however you want to describe it, overlap a whole lot more than they do now. And so while we have separation of church and state in the US, theoretically, etc, etc, I'm not touching that one. In the medieval period, they had a secular court, they also had an ecclesiastical court. And you could have trials in one or the other or both. Yes. So you didn't have that sort of legal separation. Yes. In fact, the next the next point I had written down is Chassanet argued that animals should be tried in ecclesiastical courts rather than secular, unless oh. the punishment sought were the animal's death, as ecclesiastical courts could not render a death penalty. Yes. He also argues, which I find, I, I guess it's a legal point that has to be made, but I think it should also go without saying. He also argues that animals should always be considered members of the laity rather than the clergy, unless it could be proven otherwise. Hey, we did have that saint who was a dog, so there are exceptions. That's true, but I don't think the church ever accepted that. That was more of a folk saint. (sighs) Okay, fair enough, but still. You can tell because it's fun. The church never accepts anything (laughs) fun. The church never has fun. That's blasphemous. So some more fun notes on specific trials. That's going to be most of this, because one of the like big draws of this article for me is that Evans goes over a lot of specific trials in the late medieval slash early modern period that I don't otherwise have access to because they're not trans. There's not an English translation of them. (laughs) So here's a quotation. Sometimes the obnoxious vermin were generously forewarned. Thus, the grand vicars of Jean Rohin, Rohin, whatever, Cardinal Bishop of Autun, Having been informed that slugs were devastating several estates in different parts of his diocese, on the 17th of August, 1487, ordered public processions to be made for three days in every parish, and enjoined upon the said slugs to quit the territory within this period under penalty of being accursed. On the 8th of September, 1488, a similar order was issued at... Ooh, that's a lot of vowels. (laughs) Bojo, probably... The curates were charged to make processions during the offices, and the slugs were warned three times to cease from vexing the people by corroding and consuming the herbs of the fields and to depart. Subquote. 
And if they do not heed this our command, we excommunicate them and smite them with our anathema. In 1516, the official of Troyes pronounced sentence on certain insects which laid waste the vines and threatened them with anathema unless they should disappear within six days. Here it is expressly stated that a counselor was assigned to the accused and a prosecutor heard in behalf of the aggrieved inhabitants. As a means of rendering the anathema more effective, the people are also urged to be prompt and honest in the payment of tithes. Of course. Yes. Well, because that's another part of the... I mean, there's both a sketchy and a non-sketchy way to read that. And usually when it comes to holy men, I default to the sketchy reading, which is <laughs> they want their money. But the, the non-sketchy way is you can't get church power helping you out unless you're already right with the church. If you're not right. right with the church, then maybe the slugs are there as a curse from God until you get right with the church. Yeah, you don't know. You better find out, though. So often the first step is make sure you're all right with the church and see what happens. Maybe they'll go away. I actually really like that approach. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, just from Just from like a like divine fate consequences sort of vibe like there are those moments in life when you sit back and you look at something and you're like oh this bad thing is happening to me as the natural consequences of my actions and it might be a little bit of a ways to get to that conclusion from the path you're on but it makes sense once you get there this is like a weird like christian oriented roundabout way of the same mode of thinking yeah yeah and it's again it's all internally consistent mm-hmm <laughs> Evans then delves into detail on a particular trial that he has found the documentation for. So this next bit is a quote. Again, most of these are quotes because since it's public domain, I feel free to use long quotes as much as I want. Yes. The archives of the old Episcopal city of St. Jean de Marienne contain the original records of legal proceedings instituted against some insects, which had ravaged the vineyards of St. Julian, a hamlet situated on the route of Mount Sinus, and famous for the excellence of its vintage. The defendants in this case were a species of greenish weevil. Complaint was first made by the wine growers of St. Julian in 1545, before Francois Bonnevard, doctor of laws. The procurator Pierre Falcon and the advocate Claude Morel defended the insects, and Pierre Ducol appeared for the plaintiffs. After the presentation and discussion of the case by both parties, the official, instead of passing sentence, issued a proclamation dated the 8th of May, 1546, recommending public prayers, and beginning with the following characteristic preamble, subquote, Inasmuch as God, the supreme author of all that exists, hath ordained that the earth should bring forth fruits and herbs, not solely for the sustenance of rational human beings, but likewise for the preservation and support of insects which fly about on the surface of the soil, therefore it would be unbecoming to proceed with rashness and precipitance against the animals now actually in accused and indicted. On the contrary, it would be more fitting for us to have recourse to the mercy of heaven and to implore pardon for our sins. End subquote. About 30 years later, however, the scourge was renewed and the destructive insects were actually brought to trial. A repeated offense. Yes. There's then a lengthy discussion of the arguments which I have excerpted from. Fair enough. Quote, the advocate Pierre Rimbaud presented his answer to the declaration of the plaintiffs, showing that their action is not maintainable and that they should be non-suited. After approving of the course pursued by his predecessor in office, he affirms that his clients have kept within their right and not rendered themselves liable to excommunication, since, as we read in the sacred book of Genesis, the lower animals were created before man, and God said to them, 
Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind. And he blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. Now the Creator would not have given this command, had he not intended that these creatures should have suitable and sufficient means of support. Indeed, he has expressly stated that to, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, every green herb has been given for meat. It is therefore evident that the accused, in taking up their abode in the vines of the plaintiffs, are only exercising a legitimate right conferred upon them at the time of their creation. God bless. The advocate of the commune, Francois Fay, in reply to the defendant's plea, argued that although the animals were created before man, they were intended to be subordinate to him and subservient to his use, and that this was indeed the reason of their prior creation. They have no raison d'etre except as they minister to man, who is made to have dominion over them, inasmuch as all things have been put under his feet, as the psalmist asserts and the apostle Paul reiterates, ellipsis. See, if you're, if you're wondering why there are so many denominations, this is why. It's because there's so much debate about every little thing in the Bible, and that rages on to this day. Like, this is, I mean, in its most cynical form, this is essentially just a theological, philosophical exercise. Yes. That happened on the public dime, of course. But still, it's essentially just a theological discussion. Well, yeah. And an absolutely intriguing one from my perspective, but I'm glad that I'm reading about it in the future and not actually, like, my crops are not at risk of being wasted due to this. Well, it has to be a theological discussion because you're, it's such a large thing. It's like, do these beetles have a right to eat the crops? Which is a major, like, huge discussion to have from a legal perspective, but also at the same time, it's again, so absurd. Yeah. But yeah, don't don't forget as as we're reading through this that there would be and were real life consequences to both individuals and animals involved. Yes. And and more more often when the animals were in secular courts, which is when they were being tried for murder and such, which yes. is later in the paper. But yeah, there are definitely real life consequences. Well, I would argue the only real life consequences for people are are their tax dollars going to these advocates. And well, that but also depending on on what people do like if somebody's not to like give the plot away or the premise away of the film but for instance in the advocate the accused pig has been accused of killing somebody's child and the people who own the pig need that pig for sustenance and so it is now being taken from their household because it is standing trial and once executed cannot be eaten yeah but anyway Yes. Anyway, uh, back to the weevils. Arguments and motions appear to have stretched this out for some time. Evans notes, Meanwhile, in view of the law's long delay, other measures were taken for the speedier adjustment of the affair by compromise. On the 29th of June, 1587, a public meeting was called at noon immediately after Mass on the Great Square of St. Julian, known as Parlor d'Amont, to which all Heinz inhabitants were summoned by the ringing of the church bell to consider the propriety and necessity of providing for the said animals a place outside of the vineyards of St. Julian, where they might obtain sufficient sustenance without devouring and devastating the vines of the said commune. So they're trying to reach a compromise. They're like, what if we say that the beetles or the weevils can have this place, but not Instead, our crops? How do we get them over there? Once well, again, the church can do that. Well, yes, the church could do that. <laughs> but again, law takes forever, nothing changes. Yeah. 
there follows some argument as to the suitability of the area set aside. Like, one side is like, look, this place is great. It's a weevil paradise. The other's like, no, the reason that there's no crops growing is because it's barren, it's desolate, and it's no good for our weevils. We'll never get them to move over there. But unfortunately, we cannot know how the case finally concluded. Ugh. As Evan says, quote, The final decision of the case, after such careful deliberation and so long delay, is rendered doubtful by the unfortunate circumstance that the last page of the records has been destroyed by rats or bugs of some sort. Perhaps the prosecuted weevils, not being satisfied with the results of the trial, sent a sharp-toothed delegation into the archives to obliterate and annul the judgment of the court. At least nothing should be thought incredible or impossible in the conduct of creatures which were deemed worthy of being summoned before ecclesiastical tribunals, and which succeeded as criminals in claiming forth the attention and calling forth the legal learning and acumen of the greatest jurists of their day. I mean, he's got a point. Yes. I really do recommend reading this whole thing uh, to anyone who's listening, because it's there's a very dry humor throughout. It's academic humor. It's my favorite. It's my favorite kind of humor. Yes. Especially when you get back and forth into articles. I'm sure I've talked about this before, but articles that go back and forth because they disagree with each other. Because yes. they'll, you'll just hear something along the lines of like, some have argued for the ridiculous notion that da 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 da. And it's like, you know that it's in response to, you know, I don't know, Henry's article because the article that you're currently reading is titled in response to blah, 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 blah. And you're like, wow. Okay, guys. Yeah, I think there's less of that these days, which is, I mean, I guess a victory for civility, but a shame for those of us who, who read the articles. Yes, fair enough. But in, in older journals, there was very much a... Tit for tat, sort of. Yeah. It was a weird sort of, not gossip column, but debate forum. You'd be having like article debates over the course of several years trying to fit all your research into it because mm -hmm. there was no Twitter. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's what we have Twitter for now. Yeah. <laughs> Academia Twitter can be rough. So Evans summarizes the Weevil trial as follows. In the legal proceedings just described, two points are presented with great clearness and seem to be accepted as incontestable. First, the right of the insects to adequate means of subsistence suited to their nature. This right was recognized by both parties. Even the prosecution did not deny it, but only maintained that they must not trespass cultivated fields and destroy the fruits of man's labor. The complainants were perfectly willing to assign to the weevils an uncultivated tract of ground, where they could feed upon such natural products of the soil as were not due to human toil and tillage. You can forage on public property, but not private. Yeah. Secondly... No one appears to have doubted for a moment that the church could, by virtue of its anathema, compel these creatures to stop their ravages and cause them to go from one place to another. Indeed, a firm faith in the existence of this power was the pivot on which the whole procedure turned, and without it, the trial would have been a dismal farce in the eyes of all who took part in it. Isn't it amazing to see what assumptions and premises we walk into life with? Mm-hmm. Because you immediately see this here, and to our eyes, it's like, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. I wonder in, you know, the next 500 years or whatever, they're going to look back at us and say the same thing. Like, how the hell could they have done that in their justice system? That's ridiculous. Oh, I'm, I'm certain. I mean, honestly, I have some questions about what we're doing in our justice system right now. Right now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I feel like we are, we can already identify some problematic basic assumptions, but yes. yeah, I feel like in 500 years, 
assuming that there's still functional civilization to look back (laughs) on us, that there'll be a lot of critiques about like the basic assumptions of like a capitalistic society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or what's interesting to me is even our science, because I feel like we put so much faith in our science and technology that there's got to be assumptions that we completely bypass because we just don't see them. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the weevils. The weevils. I think they came back in. I personally think that they definitely came back in because they did not like the outcome. They continued in their criminal ways. I've I've decided to accept that as part of my personal canon, yes. <laughs> in Evans's article, there's then this long digression on the habit of people to separate animals into good and bad categories. Like the stag is good and the wolf is bad and so forth. Mm-hmm. Or weevils and rats versus, yeah. you know, cats or, I don't know, dogs. Dogs are probably good. Dogs are definitely good. Dogs are good. There were the uh, the black cat massacres during the witch trials, which always breaks my heart. Yeah. Black cats are also the least kind of cat adopted because they're s- still associated with bad luck. But that changed when Black Panther came out and then a bunch of black cats. There was an, an uptick, a swing, a trend in black cats being adopted based on the film Black Panther coming out. That's wild. I did not know that. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> It is. I do know that the uh, black dogs are also the least likely to be adopted really? uh, just because they don't photograph well. Oh, that's sad. So like they don't look as cute in their shelter pictures and so people adopt them less. Oh, man. PSA, adopt, don't shop. And also consider adopting animals that are less likely to be adopted by, I guess, like families with young children at Al. Like if you can provide for a cat or a dog that maybe you know, has a missing paw or a stub tail or whatever, or that has another disability or problem, do that. Yeah, go out and adopt a senior dog or something. Yeah, go take care of a senior dog. Anyway, that's me and my bleeding heart. Yeah, or a pit bull. Pit bulls are perfectly nice animals and they have an unjustifiable bad reputation. I adore pit bulls. They are the biggest sweeties. They are. They're they're so sweet. They used to be nanny dogs. Mm -hmm. Anyway, go check out your local animal shelter. Do it on my behalf. I want a cat so bad. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) uh, The discussion on good and bad animals segues into another long digression on demonic possession. And the belief of (laughs) many... Yes. Oh, And the belief of many that since there are insufficient cases of human possession to account for all the many demons in the world, the majority of such demons must dwell in animals. And so that's why you can anathematize animals, because demons live in them and you can command demons like Jesus commands the demons into pigs. I was going to say, he he did put demons into pigs. So there is, again, precedent. Yeah. But yeah, there's a long section explaining, like, there's this, like, theoretical framework by which animals are demons. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense from my subconscious worldview. Like, it fits into my mental picture, but I couldn't tell you why. And that's really interesting. One of the one of the things that he brings up in this is that uh, it's a solution to the problem of animal souls, because like official church doctrine is only humans have souls. That's right. And therefore, there's this assumption, this like Cartesian assumption that therefore animals are just complicated automata. That's rough. Right. And but like, obviously, that's not true. We see animals behaving in ways that are more complex than, and, and yes. idiosyncratic and like they seem to have souls. Yes. Also, I should point out here that the official doctrine of the Catholic Church is that they don't have souls. It depends on what denomination you are a part of. 
Really? I thought it was all yes. of them. Nope. That is a very large contested point, actually, especially among kids of different denominations. And I can tell you this because I went to a school that had kids of various denominations, and that's what we talk about at the lunch table. Speaking as a non-religious person, I feel like if humans have souls, then dogs definitely have souls. End of. Right? I can't see how you would make that distinction. Or like, look at look at gorillas and lemurs and, you know, the monkeys and things and how closely they can connect to us. Anyway, lots of sidetracks, but yes, demons. Yeah, so the reason that the reason that's a solution is they can say, well, yes, they don't act like automata because they are actually they have demons. They, they have little demon souls. That's so terrible. Like, yeah, it makes sense great. to a point. And I like to remind people that only one third of the angels fell in the fall and became demons. So there is a limited number of demons. That's true, but we don't know how many started. Correct. So, so it could be a limited but very high number, because I don't think we ever get a census. That's true. That'd be kind of fun, though. I had a um, a seminarian who once said to me, yeah, there's a limited number, because he pointed this out to me, there's a limited number of demons. I'd like to be holy enough that I earn my own demon to, to tempt me. And his premise behind that was that there's enough temptation in the world that most of the time demons don't actually have to do any of the work. And so he would like to have a strong enough faith to earn his own personal demon that tormented him. That's quite a perspective. I wonder Isn't how it? you would know. How, how would you know that you got the demon? I don't know. But that, that always astounded me. Like it's such a such a fascinating way of looking at it. Yeah. But anyway. So yeah. maybe maybe that dog you adopted is your own personal demon. Though I do not subscribe to this outlook. I think that's rather sad. Yeah, no. I I'm I'm much happier honestly, I'm much happier with my own secular outlook that like That they have souls. Whatever special spark we have, all animals have. It's just Yeah. Whatever breath of life it is. Yeah. I don't personally believe in souls, but I will go to bat for if we have souls, then other animals do also. That makes sense. But back to some animal trials. (laughs) We're all over the place with this one. This is great. Felix Hemmerlein, better known as Maliolus, a distinguished doctor of canon law and proto-martyr of religious reform in Switzerland, states in his Tractatus de Exorcismis that in the 14th century, the peasants of the electorate of Mayence brought a complaint against some Spanish flies, which were accordingly cited to appear at a specified time and answer for their conduct. But, quote, in consideration of their small size and the fact that they had not yet reached their majority, because obviously none of them are 18. Yes, yeah. Oof. The judge appointed for them a curator who defended them with great dignity, and though he was unable to prevent the banishment of his wards, he obtained for them the use of a piece of land to which they were permitted peaceably to retire. How they were induced to go into this insect reservation and to remain there, we are not informed. The church, as already stated, claimed to possess the power of effecting the the desired migration by means of her ban. If the insects disappeared, she received full credit for accomplishing it. If not, the failure was due to the sins of the people. In either case, the prestige of the church was preserved and her authority left unimpaired. Which is the larger scope of many, if not all, of these trials. Yes. I wish we could do that with mosquitoes. Hey, how come how come the Catholic Church hasn't, you know, told all these Alaskan mosquitoes to get out of our towns? There's plenty of moose to go bite. Maybe I, don't I know. should have you tried? I don't know. I should call up the call up the local what is it, diocese? Yeah. 
Anyway, in 1519, the commune of Stelvio in western Tyrol instituted criminal proceedings against the moles or field mice, which damaged the crops, quote, by burrowing and throwing up the earth so that neither grass nor green thing could grow, end quote. But in order that the said mice may be able to show cause for their conduct by pleading their exigencies and distress, a procurator, Hans Grinebner by name, was charged with their defense, to the end that they may have nothing to complain of in these proceedings. Schwartz Minning was their prosecuting attorney, and a long list of witnesses is given, who testified that the serious injury done by these creatures rendered it quite impossible for tenants to pay their rents. Counsel for the defendants urged in favor of his clients the many benefits which they conferred upon the community, and especially upon the agricultural class, by destroying noxious insects and larvae, and by stirring up and enriching the soil, and concluded by expressing the hope that if they should be sentenced to depart, some other suitable place of abode might be assigned to them. He demanded, furthermore, that they should be provided with a safe conduct, securing them against harm or annoyance from dog, cat, or other foe. The judge recognized the reasonableness of the latter request in its application to the weaker and more defenseless of the culprits, and mitigated the sentence of perpetual banishment by offering that, quote, a free safe conduct and additional respite of 14 days be granted to all those who are with young, and to such are as yet in their infancy. But on the expiration of this reprieve, each and every must be gone, irrespective of age or previous condition of pregnancy. Wow. So again, this one had some real effect because it it affected how people could pay their rent. Like, could you waive the rent, for instance? Could you could you waive having to pay your rent because the voles destroyed your property? I'm sure it was legally possible, but I'm willing to bet that in practice, no, you couldn't because landlords. Oh, of course. Like, but still, legally, there's an argument for it. Legally, there is court. an argument for it. It went to court. Right. But uh, the solution was anathematize the mice, not... Yes. Not waive the rent for the mice. Yeah. Alas. Fascinating. Landlords so does that mean landlords. that after after the um, safe passage stipend had gone up, that you could exterminate any and all mice and voles that you found in those fields? I think that's implied. Yes. Because that would also be a very interesting follow-up that there was a there was a period of time in which the tenants not only could not pay their rent but also could not get rid of the things that were causing them to lose income yeah although i'm willing to bet that that wasn't really enforced no i'm sure not but you never know yeah. people can be very very petty an old Swiss chronicler named Schilling gives a full account of the prosecution and anathematization of a species of vermin called inger which seems to have been a coleopterous insect, which is a fancy way of saying beetle, of the genus Brycus and very destructive to the crops. The case occurred in 1478, and the trial was conducted before the Bishop of Lausanne by the authority and under the jurisdiction of Burr. Uh, the first document recorded is a long and earnest declaration and admonition delivered from the pulpit by a Bernese parish priest who begins by stating that his dearly beloved are doubtless aware of the serious injury done by the Inger and of the suffering which they have caused. After exhorting the people to entreat God by a common prayer from house to house to remove the scourge, he proceeds to warn and threaten the vermin in the following manner. Oh, here we go. Thou irrational and imperfect creature, the Inger, called imperfect because there was none of thy species in Noah's Ark at the time of the great bane and ruin of the deluge, Thou How do they know that? I don't know. 
That seems a bit presumptuous, sir. Do you have a catalog? Maybe. You know, I wouldn't put it past him. Thou art now come in numerous bands, and hast done immense damage in the ground and above the ground to the perceptible diminution of food for men and animals. And to the end that such things may cease, my gracious lord and bishop of Lausanne has commanded me in his name to admonish you to withdraw and to abstain. Therefore by his command and in his name, and also by virtue of the high and holy trinity, and through the merits of the redeemer of mankind, our savior Jesus Christ, and in virtue of and obedience to the holy church, I do command and admonish you, each and all, to depart within the next six days from all places, where you have secretly or openly done or might still do damage, also to depart from all fields, meadows, gardens, pastures, trees, herbs, and spots where things nutritious to men and to beasts spring up and grow, and to betake yourselves to the spots and places where you and your bands shall not be able to do any harm, secretly or openly, to the fruits and elements nourishing to men and beasts." In case, however, you do not heed this admonition or obey this command and think you have some reason for not complying with them, I admonish, notify, and summon you in virtue of an obedience to the Holy Church to appear upon the sixth day of after this execution at precisely one o'clock after midday at Wittlesburg, there to justify yourself or to answer for your conduct through your advocate before his grace the Bishop of Lausanne or his vicar and deputy. Thereupon my lord of Lausanne or his deputy will proceed against you according to the rules of justice with curses and other exorcisms as is proper in such cases in accordance with legal form and established practice. Impressive. Yes. It didn't work. Uh, the Inger were not driven away and did not appear for their summons, so the matter continued. Of course. And may I say just for one moment that another part of this that we haven't touched on as much is that yeah, it's sort of a given that these animals are not going to be responding to the summons, and it was also less about whether they would, and more about it is important to uphold the law for the sake of the law, because that is the foundation on which our society is based. Right, and presumably, like, the anathema might not work if you don't go through all the process of making yeah. sure it's just. Yeah, just and legal, both in the eyes of the law and God, because you're right. in an ecclesiastical court. And you never know. There might be a miracle. They might actually show up. So, since the Inger didn't show up, the mayor and common council of Bern issued the following document. Here we go. We, the mayor, council, and commune of the city of Bern, to all those of the Bishop of Lausanne who see, read, or hear this letter, we make known after mature deliberation we have appointed, chosen, and deputed, and by virtue of the present letter do appoint, choose, and depute the excellent Thuring Fricker, etc., uh, etc., et to be in charge, basically. And indeed, he has assumed this general and special attorneyship, whereof the one should not be prejudicial to the other, in the case which we have undertaken and prosecute, and have determined to prosecute before the court of the right reverend in Christ, Benedict de Montferrand, Bishop of Lausanne, Count, and our most worthy superior, against the noxious host of the Inger, which, creeping secretly in the earth, devastate the fields, meadows, and all kinds of grain, whereby with grievous wrong they do detriment to the ever-living God to whom the tithes belong, etc., 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 the reason I wanted to share that is because the internet has grabbed onto this one a bit. Oh, okay. And you may occasionally see posts on social media, as I have, sharing the fact... Oh lord, here we uh, go. I'm doing air quotes as if that comes across in an audio medium. <laughs> well, your sarcasm does, so fear not. That in 1479, beetles were put on trial for, quote, creeping secretly in the earth. But the situation was more nuanced than that. They weren't put on yes. trial for creeping in the earth. As if, like, that was some kind of sin. They were put on trial for creeping in the earth when they were supposed to be in the courthouse answering their summons. <laughs> Much more nuanced and even more absurd. 
Yes. God bless. The anathema was pronounced. The Beatles were guilty. However, nothing came of it, according to Schilling, quote, owing to our sins, unquote. Oh, alas. So it was placed upon the people. Yes. Talk about passing the buck. He does also comment on the whole Noah's Ark thing. Oh. Quote, the Swiss priest in his malediction declares that the Inger were not in Noah's Ark and even denies that they are animals, properly speaking, stigmatizing them as living corruption, products of spontaneous generation, perhaps, or more probably creation of the devil. Ooh. This position was assumed in order to escape the gross impropriety and glaring incongruity of having the Church of God curse the creatures which God had made and pronounced very good and afterwards took pains to preserve from destruction by the deluge. Of course, because that's how logic works. Well, because as we have seen, there's this whole thing where, like, the beetles have the right to eat the things that grow in the yes, earth. Yes, yes. But if they're not actually beetles and if they're not actually animals, then we don't have to think about that. Right. If, if, they, if they're not, like, something that was preserved on the Ark, if they're, again, products of spontaneous generation. Which was a fairly common idea. Yes. For the time. Yeah, the idea was that, like, um, for example, if you left out manure, it would just make flies. Not that flies lay their eggs in manure and then hatch, and right. then there are flies. It's manure makes flies. Yes. That's spontaneous generation, and it was believed to be a thing for an embarrassingly long time. Yeah. Embarrassingly is the right word there. Yes. I'm skipping a couple, uh, because I feel like we've been doing this one for a while. I'm going to skip all the way to... The other type of animal trial, that of individual animals who had committed a, a crime. Okay. Content warning on this section, uh, child death and animal cruelty. Yes. To quote Evans, on the general subject, beasts were often condemned to be burned alive, and strangely enough, it was in the latter half of the 17th century, an age of comparative enlightenment, that this cruel penalty seems to have been most frequently inflicted. Remember, this is a writer from, like, the turn of the turn of the century and also to remind people the witch trials again happened after mainly after the medieval period and the renaissance yeah in fact i think they they happened mostly in the, the 17th century yes and the 16th yes so just as a reminder because people think of those things as very medieval which medieval as a synonym for depraved and sort of basic and coarse and gross and you know, not peak mankind. Like, yes, but it was not something that occurred as often in the Middle Ages. Yes. Anyway, continuing the quote, Occasionally a merciful judge adhered to the letter of the law and curbed its barbarous spirit by sentencing the culprit to be slightly singed and then to be strangled before being committed to the flames. <sighs> Sometimes brutes were doomed to be buried alive. Thus we have the receipt of Felipar, sergeant of high justice in the city of Amiens, for the sum of 16 soldi in payment for services rendered in March 1463 in having buried in the earth two pigs, which had torn and eaten with their teeth a little child, who from this cause passed from life to death. Ugh. I will say, however, that like hogs will absolutely eat people. Yes. Yes, given the opportunity, they absolutely will. Yes. Which when I first learned about that, I was like, that terrified me for a, for a good bit. But I didn't realize that hogs and pigs would actually eat people and would be carnivorous in that way, or I guess omnivorous. But yeah, they, they absolutely will. Yeah, of course. There are claims that animals were put to the rack in order to extort confession. Puts a whole new spin on getting somebody to squeal. 
Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. I'm sorry, it was right there. The reason for this, according to Evans, was not like, as some claim, that the whatever noises the animals make will be received as confessions of guilt is, is probably not true, because why would you do that? Yes, and you're not you're not going to get any sort of response. Right, but... Like coherent response. There was a rule that if the criminal did not confess their guilt under torture, the sentence of death could be commuted into a milder form of punishment. Okay. So this could be a, like, we don't want to actually have to, like, hang this pig or whatever, so we'll... we'll Put the pig to the question, and look, it didn't confess its guilt, therefore it must be innocent, and so we'll give it a milder form of punishment, like a whipping. I guess that works. Also, it should be noted that animals and human criminals were kept in the same prisons and got the same treatment. Oh, wow. So here's a, here's a, a receipt. Tustain Pinchion, keeper of the prisons of Our Lord, the King, and the town of Pont de Larch, acknowledges the receipt through the hands of the honorable and wise man Jehan, Jehan Monet, I don't know, sheriff of the said town, of 19 sous, 6 deniers tournois, some money, of some money, for having found the king's bread for the prisoners detained by reason of crime in the said prison. The jailer gives the names of the persons in custody and concludes the list with, quote, Item one pig conducted into the said prison and kept there from the 24th of June, 1408, inclusive till the 17th of the following July, when it was hanged for the crime of having murdered and killed a little child. For the pig's board, the jailer charged two money amounts. I can't pronounce <laughs> this. Denier? Yeah. Yeah. A day. The same as for boarding a man. Wow. He also puts into the account 10 denier for a rope found and furnished for the purpose of tying the said pig so that it might not escape. Fair enough, I guess. Wow. So yeah, in all cases, they were like, okay, we have to go through the motions. This pig is a criminal. Therefore, this pig goes to the jail. Mm -hmm. This pig gets the, the food budget that other prisoners get. Wow. And another content warning. Bestiality, which Evans refers to as buggery, is also a matter for such prosecutions. I don't like that term. No, but it's, it's again, it's, a, it's an old-fashioned article. Yes. To quote Evans, Buggery was uniformly punished by putting to death both parties implicated, and usually by burning them alive. The beast, too, is punished, and both are burned, says Julielmus Benedictinus, a writer on law who lived about the end of the 14th century. Thus, in 1546, a man and a cow were hanged and then burned by order of the Parliament of Paris the Supreme Court of France. In 1466, the same tribunal condemned a man and a sow to be burned at Corbeil. Do they assume that these creatures are consenting? Like, why why kill both of them? That is a good question. Or is it, or is it that like, you can't eat the meat of something that has been sodomized? Either or both. I think it's that they assume they're consenting. Wow. That feels wrong on every level but I suppose makes a certain level of sense to them? Question mark? Yeah, which is, which is why I have my next quote here. Oh, here we Since go. In some cases, a bit of sanity seems to have slipped in. And I quote, In the case of Jacques Ferron, who is taken in the act of coition, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation because coitus yes. is the word that I would usually see there. Yes. With a she-ass at Vanvres in 1750, and after due process of law sentenced to death, the animal was acquitted. 
on the ground that she was the victim of violence and had not participated in her master's crime of her own free will. God bless, finally. The prior of the convent, who also performed the duties of parish priest and the principal inhabitants of the commune of Vanvres, signed a certificate, saying that they had known the said she asked for four years, and she had always shown herself to be virtuous and well-behaved, both at home and abroad, and had never given occasion of scandal to anyone, and that therefore they were willing to bear witness that she is in word and deed and in all our habits of life a most honest creature. Oh my gosh. This document, given at Vanvres on September 19th, 1750, and signed by Tintuil Prior something French. Yes and the other attesters, was produced during the trial and exerted a decisive influence upon the judgment of the court. As a piece of exculpatory evidence, it may be regarded as unique in the annals of criminal prosecution. I'd say so. Wow. I'm cutting out a number of similar examples of bestiality, a weird yes. tangent on how it was at one point seriously debated whether it was sexually improper for Christians and Jews to sleep together. Yeah, yeah, that checks. And some more stuff about pigs eating people. A bit I did want to include, though, also about pigs. A lot of these are about pigs. Well, pigs did eat a lot of people Yeah. back in the day, I guess. Plus, there there were some for, like, donkeys and, and other, I guess, herd animals or horses for, like, kicking people and, like, hitting them in the head. And yeah. There were those, too. Yeah, it seems most of the murder trials are pigs, yeah. which fair. Anyway, in 1394, a pig was hanged at Mortain for having sacrilegiously eaten a consecrated wafer. That's rough. You don't do that to people. Like, what happens if your kid accidentally eats a consecrated wafer? I think it's okay because it's not sacrilege. I don't like any of that, but okay. And in a case of infanticide, it is expressly stated in the plaintiff's declaration that the pig killed the child and ate of its flesh, quote, although it was Friday. <laughs> And this violation, prescribed by the church, was urged by the prosecuting attorney and accepted by the court as a serious aggravation of the porker's offense. Oh my gosh. But you can't eat meat on Fridays. Correct. And apparently that includes human meat. I would say that especially includes human meat. Oh boy. Woo. And a small digression that I found interesting. In 1474, the magistrates of, I think that's pronounced Vale or something, Sentenced a cock to be burned at the stake for the heinous and unnatural crime of laying an egg. Oh, we've seen this before. I know, that's why I included it. Ooh. The auto de fe was held on a height near the city called the Kolenberg, with as great solemnity as would have been observed in consigning a heretic to the flames, and was witnessed by an immense crowd of townsmen and peasants. The statement made by Gross in his Kurtze Basler Chronique, or however you say that, that the executioner on cutting open the cock found three more eggs in him is, of course, absurd. We have to do in this case not with a freak of nature, but with the freak of an excited imagination tainted with superstition. Evans is very condescending about that. Well, he is a Victorian, is he not? Yeah. So. Other instances of this kind have been recorded, one in the Swiss Pratigau, as late as 1730, although in many cases the execution of the gallinaceous malefactor was more summary and less ceremonious than at Bale. The oeuf cocatri, I'm surely saying that wrong, but I believe that's cockatrice egg in French. Makes sense. Was supposed to be the product of a very old cock and to furnish the most active ingredient of witch ointment. When hatched by a serpent or toad or by the heat of the sun, it brought forth a cockatrice or basilisk, which would hide in the roof of the house and with its baneful breath and death-darting eye destroy all the inmates. 
Many naturalists believed this fable as late as the 18th century, and in 1710, the French savant La, La Perron... La Perron... La <laughs> deemed this absurd notion worthy of serious refutation, and read a paper before the Academy of Sciences in order to prove that cocks never lay, and that the small and yolkless eggs attributed to them owe their peculiar shape and condition to a disease of the hen, resulting in a hydropic malformation of the oviduct. I just wanted to share that section because we've talked about rooster eggs before. Yes, we very much have. That's fascinating. I didn't realize it was that late. Yeah, apparently it went into the 18th century. Mm, that's like scurvy. It's such a simple fix, but we didn't figure out what it was or how to cure it for so long. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's surprising like that. Yeah. Like, we should have figured that out earlier. And yet. And yet. All right. The last section, Evans also discusses inanimate objects held responsible for crimes. Oh, gosh. And I've got three quotes here. Okay. Quote, when the Russian prince Dmitri, the son of Ivan II, was assassinated on May 15, 1591 at Uglich... I think, is how you say that, his place of exile, the great bell of that town rang the signal of insurrection. For this serious political offense, the bell was sentenced to perpetual banishment in Siberia and conveyed with other exiles to Tobolsk. After a long period of solitary confinement, it was partially purged of its iniquity by conjuration and reconsecration and suspended in the tower of a church in the Siberian capital. But not until 1892 was it fully pardoned and restored to its original place. Wow. Second quote. According to an old Anglo-Saxon law, a sword or other object by which a man had been slain was not regarded as pure, yesund, until the crime had been expiated and therefore could not be used but must be set apart as a sacrifice. A sword cutler would not take such a weapon to polish or repair without a certificate that it was yesund or free from homicidal taint so as not to render himself liable for any harm it might inflict, since it was supposed to exert a certain magical and malicious influence. Fascinating. That one makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. It also aligns with the idea that in many areas in the medieval world, women would not sleep with their husbands, but they would sleep separately while they were on their period, or they would be only with other women on their period because they were considered unclean. I have heard that. I, I feel like that's that's something that I feel like is pretty widespread. And I ha also have to wonder if it's just like an excuse to get a break from their husbands. I don't know. It's It makes sense to me that people think that period blood is unclean. Well, it's blood. Right. It is blood. And that vibes people out. And it's also blood that is produced naturally or is expunged from the body naturally. But if you think about the humoristic system, anything that was expunged from the body or needed to be expunged, therefore had to be unclean. Oh, okay. That tracks. So it makes a lot of sense to me that like you can't stop a woman from having her period. I mean, nowadays you can, but you couldn't do anything about it then. So you just have to sort of let it run its course and sort of, vibe by yourself and then return to society. I don't know how prevalent that was, given the fact that probably most peasant women had to work regardless. Right. You know, but there is something to be said for women being considered unclean while menstruating, which still occurs around the world, depending on where you are. Yeah. And like, again, on one hand, it's insulting to be like you're unclean because you're menstruating. Right. 
But on the other hand, I can totally see like medieval women going like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm unclean. I'll go. I'll go hang I'll go out away. away from all you gross menfolk for a bit. Yeah. yeah. That sounds great. You know what? I think I'm going to be unclean extra long this month. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how that would work. I haven't done the research on that, but there's sort of a correlation there. Anyway, my last quote. In some of the Scottish islands, it is the custom to beach a boat from which a fisherman had been drowned, cursing it for its misdeed and letting it dry and fall to pieces in the sun. The boat is guilty of manslaughter and must no longer be permitted to sail the sea with innocent craft. Again, that kind of makes sense. The article then generally wraps up with a discussion of deodand, which is an old common law principle in which an object or animal deemed responsible for someone's death was forfeit to the state to do with as they thought just. Mm. Which might be giving it to the victim's family or might be selling it and splitting the money amongst the community or since it's the state, probably just keeping it. But in theory, they would do something for the with common it. good with it. Yeah. All right, and that's that article, which, as advertised, was a bit long, but I think we do have time for another, so All right, should we please get bring mine? me yours. Okay, let me pull it up. Let's see. And while, while Zoe finds hers, I do want to once more exhort everyone to look this up and read the whole thing. It's worth it. It's called Bugs and Beasts Before the Law. It is free on Project Gutenberg and archive.org. So mine is one that I, I think, stumbled on. And just attached to because it is a meme that a lot of edgy backstories in D&D or in video games or whatever come from somebody not having parents, somebody being orphaned. And I wanted to come up with something that is a little bit more interesting than that. And I wondered, like, how reasonable that actually was for the Middle Ages for the medieval period. Because yes, of course mortality rates were very high, but that, that statistic is often skewed by infant mortality rate. And once you, once really you got up to age 10 or 12, you could live up to your, you know, 60s, 70s. It just depended. Right. It, regardless of what people think, it wasn't weird for people to get to the age of 40 or 50 in, in medieval times. No, no. People were routinely getting up to 40 and 50. Yeah, that was normal. People could live into their 80s just as they can now. Yeah. Life expectancy just seems so low because of infant mortality skewing the statistics. Yes. And of course, you know, there's cancer and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, like you were you were more likely to die earlier, but not as likely as the numbers make it seem. Yes, precisely. So anyway, I found this article titled City Orphans and Custody Laws in Medieval England. It's by Elaine Clark. And I really enjoy this article because it sort of establishes some light on what being an orphan in medieval England would really have been like. It gets mostly into the legalities of it, but I think it's a very good reference for a more interesting backstory. Because especially if you choose, for instance, to create a character in a campaign, a TTRPG campaign, and your character is an orphan, they could come of age to claim their inheritance from the state in that campaign based off of things that I'm going to talk about in this article, which I think is way cooler than the idea of like, my parents died and I lived on the road and blah, 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 blah. And it's just horrible. And I have to earn everything. Like, yeah, cool story, but also very much a trope at this point. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a fun way to get into some of the more interesting 
legality. So here we go. Uh, I've highlighted bits and pieces that I want to cover, so hopefully it won't get too long. I mean, feel free to let it get long. Mine did. Yeah, fair enough. All right. The historical record first acquires detail in centuries of urban growth, particularly in the 12th and 13th, when customals in all parts of England provided for the wardship of orphans, that is, underage children who had suffered the loss of fathers, but not necessarily mothers. This will be important later. However, by the turn of the 13th century, urban officials and commentators alike emphasized the limited capacity of children at law. During late centuries, too, the legal view prevailed that childhood was a distinct stage of life, which people have this idea about the Middle Ages that they saw children as mini-adults. Yeah. Which is not true. Yes, children would be working early, but they saw childhood as a distinct stage. Yes, and they figured out, as you just said, that children are bad at law. <laughs> yes, minors. Which is, I think, something that we recently had to be reminded of here in America when we had, uh, I believe, children in immigration courts. Oh, Lord, are you serious? Mm -hmm. I didn't hear about that. It was a couple of years ago. It might still be going on, actually. Oh, my gosh. But I heard of it a couple of years ago. Yikes. Although the... Everyday lives of boys and girls generated less interest. The plight of homeless children attracted notice, yet neither the behavior of orphans and wards nor the varied problems they face can be fully gauged by reading chronicles and customs alone. So that sort of just covers the fact that we can't see a whole big picture just because we don't have any information left about the entire big picture or there was never anything written down. Quote, the best evidence we have covers the decades before and after the Black Death. In fact, little quantitative information survives until the 14th century when there are court proceedings that describe the custody of orphans, but only in London and Bristol. What makes these records notable is the quality and detail of the testimony they preserve. Municipal government aided children indirectly at best, despite the intervention of courts it was the household rather than the municipality that constituted the major source of support for city orphans. So essentially what we're getting at here is the idea that, again, we're getting just a snapshot. And also these laws protected orphans, but the city did not give them full support. You still had to rely on a community, a local community for that. The mayor of Bristol maintained his authority over minors through a hundred courts held in the town's guild hall. That's not to say through a hundred courts. But <laughs> I was through, going to make that, that yes. clarification if you didn't. Yeah. Through the thing called a hundred court. Yes. A hundred being like a division of land or population. Like a district. Yes, essentially a district. The mayor of Bristol maintained his authority through these courts held in the town's guild hall. In Bristol, as in London, officials made the guardianship of orphans a matter of public concern in order to protect inheritances. According to Bristol's charter of 1331, the mayor had the right to appoint guardians for all underage heirs and the authority to receive the bonds and recognize recognizances needed to safeguard the inheritances of orphans. In London, too, guardians had to provide surety and follow directives set by the mayor and his court. Together, they claimed that the legal custody of the persons and property of orphans belonged to the city. So not to the individual, but to the city. So essentially what I'm getting at here, or what this paragraph is getting at here, is when a child was left orphaned, the state could assign guardians number one. And two, if somebody had volunteered to be a guardian or you know was appointed a guardian, they had to follow specific directives and orders 
that protected the child, or at least protected the child's inheritance. So the inheritance is owned by the state until that child comes of age, which essentially prevents somebody from coming in and taking that inheritance from the child. Mm -hmm. So the backstory, for instance, of, oh, my parents died and my uncle came in and stole all my land and stole all my inheritance. And now I am just, I got kicked out, left on the street. That legally could not occur. I'm sure it illegally occurred once or twice. Yes, for sure. But there were protections of the state for, again, the inheritances more than the kids. But what are you going to do? Well, it's easier to guard an abstract concept than a living person. Now, a little bit about orphans at this time. Orphans never constituted an undifferentiated group in urban society. Only the children of free men and women came under the jurisdiction of the municipal courts. Neither London nor Bristol protected the orphans of the poor and property lists. Instead, city officials agreed to supervise the sons and daughters of householders who had chattels, land, and cash to bequeath. In this way, local courts represented the interests of the deceased no less than the concerns of the orphaned. The former had been people of property and rank with carefully defined legal rights. Most had accumulated wealth. Many had completed an apprenticeship. Others had taken part in town government. All had enjoyed status that full membership in the urban community conferred. For these Burgesses, the Court of Orphans was not a charity. Rather, it comprised an integral part of the municipal government, wherein the very officials who ran the court were, when necessary, its customers. So this is a very class-based Absolutely. System. Yes. You, there was no opting into this system. You were either a part of it because you had the property to be a part of it, or you were not a part of it. Mm -hmm. So for a backstory of like a farmer whose parents are killed by the Black Plague, yeah, you're screwed. You're an orphan, buddy. Who's going to take your land? You don't even own that land. It's going to be rented out to the next farmer. It's not yours. What are you going to do? You're screwed. So again, it always interests me and kind of bothers me a little bit how we see these things like this incredibly complex system of ensuring the protection of the inheritance and wealth of a minor orphan but only if they had rank mm -hmm. only if they had a certain class otherwise f you and it's wild to me because it's so sophisticated on one end and so rock bottom on the other well i mean how different is it now really the law always works for the people who already have money uh, yes what's the phrase uh there's there's a biblical teaching on this but essentially it's the rich will become richer and the poor will become poorer yeah it's the matthew principle and i mean that's that's what uh privilege means as terry pratchett reminds us mm -hmm. it's it means private law jumping into how this sort of i almost said courtship that is not the right word Jumping into how this worked in the law from the courts. But it took me a second to like, <laughs> wait a minute. How the courtship worked. Nope, that's not the right word. Orphans would give each other bouquets of dead rats collected <laughs> from the city sewers. Yuck. It's a new form of rat king. That's how they made them. Oh, gosh. From the court's point of view, orphans were heirs under age, as well as children forced by circumstance to mourn the recently dead, whether a mother and father together or, less tragically, one parent alone. Although uncles, grandparents, and family friends bequeathed property to minors, few heirs with parents warranted the concern that city orphans did. So if you had a more extended family member die, you didn't count as a city orphan. 
So you didn't have the same protections. This was more of a direct mother-father guardianship position. Continuing, quote, What troubled municipal authorities was the vulnerability of children with no parental alliance. Orphans were powerless and unprotected. Their property was liable to misuse. Major asterisk here that I am putting in as Zoe. Also by the government. The government can also misuse the property. This is the problem with this system. That is true. Is that, yes, it's built to protect the property and inheritance of the orphan, but who watches the watcher sort of thing. Even the king had this concern, saying in 1331 that he understood how inheritances in Bristol had been wasted and lost in many ways to the manifest damage and impoverishment of orphans. Like-minded Burgesses spoke of small children easily cheated of the rents and chattels bequeathed to them by the deceased. Royal writs reminded London's mayor of the dangers posed by guardians able to profit financially off an orphan's death. Goodness. Yes. It's a business opportunity. To some. But essentially, the point is here, the king and the higher-ups in the government also saw this as a problem. It's like, oh, if Elon Musk dies, who gets the company? Does his kid get it or does it get split up? We want to make sure the kid gets it. But, you know, a single mom who dies in a car accident? What do her kids get? Well, we don't care. Yeah, there's a problem with that system. There's a problem with that system. Like, am I glad that there were safety nets in place for those orphaned kids? Yes. Are we glad that Elon Musk is dead? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but should these rights have been expanded to encompass orphaned children of all classes? Absolutely. Theoretically, this is why we have a state to help people who can't help themselves. Yes. Funny. Like orphans of poor families. As Christ commanded, the poor will, you will always have with you, so help them. Anyway, during the 15th century, the city's mayors approved bequests, which, when tabulated, ran from 100 to 1,600 pounds per decade. And this was not all. In London and Bristol, orphans' estates included shops, houses, market stalls, garden plots, tenements, and rents. The real estate bequeathed orphans, along with the household goods, the jewelry, clothing, and cash, drew attention to boys and girls privileged by their wealth. These were not children destined to live lives of poverty and want, yet the very wealth of orphans subjected the children to civic regulation. Should an orphan marry, seek an inheritance, make a will, or die under age, the mayor and aldermen had a say, reminding all concerned of the limitations imposed on persons and property of minors. London fined and threatened to imprison anyone allowing an orphan younger than 21 to take a spouse without the mayor's approval. Oh, that was that's older than I expected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you got your parents' shops, rents, tenements, etc., but you couldn't do anything with them until you came of age. And also, you could not marry. And if you found somebody to marry, you had to get the mayor of your town to approve it. Right, because if you're a ward of the state and you need parental approval, that means that the state is basically your parent and has yep. to... Yep, okay. Yep. So you go on down to City Hall and ask the mayor for, you know, this lady's hand in marriage. I mean, I've got to assume that they would usually say yes, because, like, why wouldn't they? But think about this. If it was an unfit match, that is to say, if it was to somebody who did not align with the mayor's political orientation, or was too poor, or whatever, then they could lose the influence they have over that minor 
and not be able to manipulate and touch that wealth later. Of course. Of course. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Sorry to ruin that one for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you would want to say, like, yes, get married to whoever you love, but no, absolutely not. Because even, you know, think about it, like, what if he fell in love with a Jew? Can't have a good Christian boy marrying a Jewish woman. Absolutely not. Not in the Middle Ages. Not in the Middle Ages. That's true. I mean, I'm sure it happened, but it was usually frowned upon. Absolutely. Well, and, and by that time, I think the expulsion of Jews from England had already occurred. Or was that in the 1400s? I don't remember. But yeah, there were a lot of reasons why the state would not allow a marriage of somebody with a lot of wealth. I guess I should have seen that coming. Because <laughs> it, it, if it requires approval, then there's got to be a circumstance under which it wouldn't get approved. Exactly. And then, of course, you have the date of 21 years old, or the age of mm -hmm. 21 years old, which, again, is a lot higher than people think. But I like to remind people that the average marrying age of men was, I believe, 22, and the average marrying age of a woman was 26. Average marrying age of women is higher? I believe so, yeah. I would not have expected it. Might, it might be flipped, but it's, it's those numbers i think it's probably flipped so men is like 26 and women is 22 or 23 but my my point here is that it's a lot higher than you know kids getting shacked up when they're 13 15 you know right 18. everyone assumes that that's what the middle ages were like but in reality when you're thinking of like marriage at 14 that's not like peasants that's political marriages yeah well one it's political marriages and two remember that medieval individuals knew that children were children and that mm -hmm. there was a stage of development called childhood. Right. So I digress, but I like to remind people that because the amount of times, so, like I, I'll say like, oh, I do medieval studies or I'm a medievalist or whatever. And someone goes like, oh yeah. And they got married really young. I'm like, no, no. And the amount of times I've heard that as a justification for a player to romance a minor what kind of campaigns are you running? No, not that I have run, but like have read about or heard about through other people. Ah, it's okay. wild to me because I'm like, y'all, y'all. Or again, this is like the Game of Thrones phenomenon. Like, oh, it's fine to, you know, for Daenerys to be a minor and call Drogo or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Because that's what the Middle Ages were like. And it's a fantasy novel based on the Middle Ages. Well, that was a political marriage. and that True. So that's that is a different thing. Like True. political marriages could be wildly divergent in age. Yes, didn't make it okay. Just need to say that. Um, no. But anyway, there's a lot of what's the term historicism about people getting married young in the Middle Ages and childhood not being a thing, and that is not true. And I just need to state it for the record. All right. And this does a really good job of doing that because it's literally a law saying that you can't get married independently until you're 21, which is in fact older than the age in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's 18. 18 in the US. And I know that because I've been to several weddings where parents had to sign off on it. Right. You grew up in a religious community. Rural Alaska, baby. They get, they get married at 17 and 18. Oof. Ouch. Oh, I, it freaks me out. I can't. Well, I was going to say, I can't imagine a lot of those marriages last, but then I realized, I mean, it's weird. A lot of those people might be the ones, the same groups who think divorce is a sin. Well, that that's the very interesting thing is that I'll, I have seen quite a few of them blossom and grow and be absolutely beautiful. And I've seen others that end in divorce at age 23, which is so quick. Like you're 23, you're already divorced. Yeah, that is, that's speed running. 
Yeah, that's a lot. And, you know, you do you make the choices that you feel are right for you in, you know, your belief system and so on and so forth. But I don't know, at least where I come from in my background, my personal view, marriage is a big deal. And you should take the time to really think about that. Yeah. And also, don't just get married because you want to have sex, kids. Good advice. I just have to say it because it's extremely prevalent in religious communities, in especially local Christian religious communities, because you can't have sex outside of marriage. Therefore, the only okay way to have sex is in marriage. So you get married really early. No, you guys, that's not what the Lord wants in my reading of it. But there are other things you can do in the meantime. <laughs> This has been a PSA. <laughs> didn't even think of that. That's that's my secular upbringing coming yep. back. Yeah. Like I, I did not even make that connection that like no premarital sex means people get married young. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think if you grow up and live in a religious community, it is a huge deal. Please educate your kids, your friends, whoever, about safe sex. Yes. Because it is fact. not taught enough or well in schools in america i don't know about the rest of the world i can't attest to that but mm. yeah this is a wild digression but that it is true that sex education is very bad in many parts of america yes often correlating with religion like you said religious communities yep. and that's a bad idea not giving not giving children sex education does not mean that those children are not going to have sex yes absolutely teenagers are horny they will have sex just teach them how to do it safely yeah yeah and also, don't think that you can control your kid. I mean, this is another wild digression, but like not telling your kid about this stuff or like trying to put the fear of God into them about it is not going to stop them. You cannot stop your kid. You can only prepare them. Yeah. But anyway, back to orphan laws. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it all ties together. Yeah, a bit. Simply put, going back to the article, children lacked the freedom to utilize their patrimony as they alone chose before reaching legal age. Even then, courts insisted an orphan had to appear mature and in control, fully capable of caring for himself and, in the opinion of neighbors, may able to make informed choices, until such time orphans required guardians. That's saying in addition to being of legal age. Mm -hmm. So you could be 21, and if your community does not think you are a mature adult, you don't get your inheritance. I can see that being useful, but I can also see that being abused. Yes. Okie doke. Mothers generally became the guardians of boys and girls orphaned by their father's death. The father or his next of kin acted as guardians in the event of a mother's demise. Other relatives and friends of the deceased became guardians, if so, named in wills. Among neighbors and kin, the custom of mutual help limited the need to turn to urban officials for help in finding caretakers for the young. Of course, much depended on the actual circumstances of family life. If both parents were dead, if no kinsman wanted the child, and then if the wardship fell into dispute, then it was practical for mayors and aldermen to intervene. I like the discussion of mutual aid and the community caring for its members, because that's something that I feel like they had more of in the medieval era than we do in the modern day, is networks within the community to help yes. one another out. I agree. I think that's very, very sad. Yes. And again, this goes back to the state being able to decree who takes care of the kid. So even if, for instance, dad dies, mom's abusive, the state can say, no, we're putting him with next of kin or, you know, whatever. Another thing that I can see being useful, but I can also see being abused. Yes. Again, 
What then were the guidelines? Initially, the directives were child-oriented and prescriptive, counseling guardians to nurture the young, clothe, feed, and educate them, and when wards came of age, not to disparage them by arranging marriages with unsuitable spouses. So there is a protection there. Just as importantly, the economic security of orphans required guardians to preserve the child's estates, to waste nothing, nor deplete the legacies entrusted to their care. To abuse this trust to leave houses unrepaired or rents uncollected placed guardians at risk. They had to account for wardships and were obligated to surrender property to children of legal age. The obligation was sufficiently serious to make urban officials circumspect. They refused to trust the bare word of legal guardians. Instead, municipal authorities compelled guardians to appear in court in the presence of the mayor to acknowledge the money and goods due to the young. This acknowledgement of a recognizance of debt had the force of law. Consequently, when orphans came of age, neither they nor their attorneys had of necessity to bring a costly suit for the recovery of an estate. The recognizance was equivalent to a judgment. In the case of default, bailiffs and sheriffs collected the debt from the guardian's property or that of his sureties. No exceptions were made. Even pregnant widows had to appear in court and publicly promise to keep the inheritances of unborn children safe. Wow. Yeah. Although, to what degree is a public promise binding? Like, are, are people checking up on it? In this case, it matches the law. So you do have to periodically check in with the state and say, oh no, their fund is still good. It's still over here. I'm still keeping up on the rents and I'm not spending them. That goes over here to the kid. Which I really like because again, I think you can do this sort of historicism with this sort of material and say something along the lines of, well, what would keep a, you know, mother or an uncle from taking that kid's estate or a step, you know, a step parent coming in and taking all of that rent, taking all of that money. Right. How do we deal with the wicked stepmother problem? Exactly. And this is how, like, legally, these children were protected so that they would have an inheritance to come into. I also like that they had a, and remember, again, this is like the wealthier kids, guardians were directed to clothe, feed, and educate them, and they cannot arrange marriages with, quote, unsuitable spouses. Now, that's very vague language, but there's at least something protective there. Now, as... The Middle Ages went on, things got more convoluted, as law always does as you go through history. Where public policy towards orphan changed was in the assignment of guardians. Their appointment gradually became a function of city administration. In London, as early as 1307, the mayor and aldermen claimed the right to name guardians and to dispose of an orphan's property at will. This right, they insisted, was theirs, quote, according to the custom of the city, unquote, and as such superseded the claims of kinship. Although the usual procedure still involved family and near friends in the custody of children, the mayor acted as the ultimate guardian of orphans at law. This was also the case in Bristol in 1331, where the king expressly committed the inheritances of orphans to the mayor, then empowered him to appoint caretakers for the young. Thereafter, every guardian received custody of a child from the hands of the mayor. The result of these policies was to bring children into closer contact with urban officials. In Bristol, the bailiff and undersheriff, along with the mayor, had the responsibility for the wardship of the young. In London, the common sergeant, but it's with a J. I think it's supposed to be sergeant, but it's S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. Anyway, he served as attorney for orphans, while the chamberlain took charge of persons and property for homeless orphans until guardians were found. This is very interesting because it indicates that at a certain point, you could easily abuse the system if you were an official. You could dispose with the orphan's property at will. So family couldn't, but the state could. 
And so again, who watches the watchers? However, there were still a lot of protections. Like I go back and forth with this article because it's it's so interesting because it's like, yes, we protect the orphans in medieval England, but also we can abuse them. And I, I suppose this is like any other thing with law. But it's it's just fascinating to me how it was so advanced and also so easily abused. But anyway, for instance, the court wanted to know whether an orphan had received the care he was due to learn, too, if a mother had coerced her daughter to marry or a stepfather his ward. If, as occasionally happened, quote, near friends and kin bitterly disputed the guardianship of an orphan, the mayor asked the child where he preferred to live. So, Makes sense. Again, there were wellness checks. The child could pick which guardian they preferred to live with. The lesson that mayors meant to impart was that orphans had the court's protection, and in any injury done to them wronged the mayor and his court. If, at this time, any doubt arose about an inheritance or the orphan's actual age, the mayor relied on the community for advice. At his request, auditors inf investigated the misuse of property, executors rechecked wills, widows reported the last wishes of the deceased, neighbors came forward in groups of 5 to 12 to testify the orphan's age. They spoke of his character and, when asked, mentioned where he had been baptized and the parish where he lived. The mayor's concern to have his fellow Burgesses in court reflected and enhanced the community's interest in the lives of the young. This part I actually really like because it sort of reinforces that idea about the community and also the common phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Right. In this case, the community is coming together to ensure that this kid is in the right hands and everything in the law that needs to be answered is answered. A bit more about the details of this stuff. Urban families recognized the legal disabilities of children and paid attention to the question of age whenever boys and girls inherited property. Throughout the 14th century, two out of three orphans, when they became wards, were younger than 10. Nearly 21% were no older than three. As long as the orphan were neither 21 nor married, they were viewed as children in need of support. This support derived as much from the law's demands as communal expectations about the care of young. Many Burgesses shared the view that children did not prosper when treated as adults. Instead, what orphans required was a sense of protection and the security of family life. Hey, that's nice. That's, ah, uh, yes, because they recognize that childhood is a thing that exists. Oh, it's almost like that's the whole point. Yes. So essentially... People in the Middle Ages, especially the law in the Middle Ages, recognized children as children. And often these kids were orphaned fairly young. Mm -hmm. Like 21% below the age of three is, oh, that's a big percentage. That is, yeah. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I don't have the details on that, but that's interesting. There's a brief note about how, generally speaking, the culture of the time recognized mothers as the sort of de facto caretaker. However, mm -hmm. legally, a lot more men than women were the legal caretakers because, once again, women's rights would be affected by how they married and just the fact that they were women. So they could secure an orphan's inheritance and property better by making the legal overseer a man. Right. Presumably the mother would still be involved. Yes. And notably, and I really like this because we talked about the evil stepmother problem, mm -hmm. stepfathers had no implicit rights in the inheritance of orphans. You cannot marry into that kid's wealth. You can marry into the mother's wealth, mm -hmm. but you cannot touch that child's inheritance, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that's a sensible thing. Mm -hmm. William Le Honneur bequeathed land to his widow in 1303 only to threaten his wife with eviction were she to remarry and fail to support his youngest daughter. 
So, like, if you did, if you remarry and then try and pull out of supporting your kids, like my kids, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have issues. I'll kick you out of the house. You won't get the house. I mean, I guess it's good that he cares about giving his kids support. Yeah. So, to sum up, we must not see the practice of wardship as inflexible and unresponsive to the changing circumstances of urban life. Wardship was both a family matter and a public institution. It brought the persons and property of fatherless children under the jurisdiction of courts, but still involved the participation and approval of neighbors and kin. Brothers and sisters remained together or lived apart at the discretion of adults. No rule compelled guardians to keep siblings in the same household, nor did parents expect relatives to raise all the children of the deceased. Fathers and mothers alike endorsed the practice of what may be called shared or divided custody. When Jean Le Draper of Bristol was dying in 1337, he had four small children for whom to find homes. He entrusted his eight-year-old daughter, along with ten pounds in silver, to a fellow burgess. John then placed his two sons, aged seven and five, with a Bristol draper, also giving him custody of 20 pounds and a shop valued at 24 shillings a year. As for the youngest child, a two-year-old girl, John entrusted her to the care of a widow on the understanding that she hold for his daughter a shop valued annually at 26 shillings, eight pence. Similar arrangements are found in London and Bristol throughout the 14th century, as are settlements wherein widowed mothers held the wardship of children younger than four, but sent their older boys and girls to live in the house of kin and family friends. Sounds like people making sensible decisions for their children. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, this is where that sort of medieval idea of like going off for an apprenticeship comes from. Mm-hmm. As a very, very suitable option, for instance, if you were a widow whose husband had just died, you don't have a really good source of income. You can't really provide for your four kids. So what can you do? You can send them to relatives. You can send them to neighbors. You can send them to guilds, et cetera, et cetera. You can, I mean, you could send them to a monastery to provide for them. So while this sounds kind of rough in terms of like splitting up nuclear families, it did provide a very good stable support structure for these kids. Right. And the nuclear family is a fairly recent invention anyway. Yes. Orphans and wards lived a highly circumscribed world. The money and goods they had inherited entitled them to protection of courts, but at the same time compelled the children to rely on guardians to handle property and administer estates. Because what, you're going to give an eight-year-old kid charge of, you know, an estate with rents and tenantships? Right. No. He, He doesn't know how to manage that. When most boys and girls became wards, they lacked the maturity and knowledge to solve problems on their own. These orphans, no matter what, Their legacies had little choice but to defer to the authority of adults. This situation afforded guardians the opportunity to manipulate children to benefit from their labor and profit from their wealth. So again, big problems here. Mm -hmm. If you educate the child well, this system could work very, very well with the right people, you know, good people wanting to take care of these kids and see them right. If not, yeah, it could cause problems. Yeah. This is not to say that urban orphans suffered neglect or that they were more exploited than helped. There can be no mistaking the privilege of children educated at Oxford and the Inns of Court, nor is it easy to overlook the role played by urban households in the practical learning of orphans and wards. Their upbringing invariably reflected the preferences and society of politically advantaged adults. So again, yeah, they could be abused and hurt and so on and so forth and taken advantage of. And also they were still living in a privileged world. It can be both. Yes. By the end of the 14th century, the involvement of guardians in the lives of the young belied any assumption that parents alone bore responsibility for what happened to children in towns. So the state took more and more control. You could also interpret that as being it's a more community-centered thing than true family than a nuclear thing. thing. 
Yeah, that's very, very true. Especially because, again, as you said, the nuclear household, especially in the US, is very, very new. And the trend of people you know, in their 20s and 30s going back to live with their parents right now is something that has happened for millennia. And so for our parents' generation, it was get out of the house at 18, have a house, you know, have kids, Mm -hmm. live your own nuclear life. That was impossible for a really long time and is becoming impossible again for people in, you know, Gen Z to do. And there's a discussion to be had about whether that kind of individualism is even like a good idea or if a more like community-centered, extended family-oriented existence is better for people. Mm -hmm. Like the nuclear family is a very individualistic concept in itself. Mm -hmm. And is that the best way to go? Yeah, it's up for discussion. Mm -hmm. The demands of urban life, no less than the chance of workings of death and remarriage, required the young to defer to the decisions of the old, to depart a guardian's household when asked, and provide companionship to a widow living alone, or to help a townsman without children of his own. As a result, boys and girls did not necessarily have the same guardian throughout their minority. So this reflects on the idea that a lot of orphans, and this applies in our day and age, they get bounced around. Mm-hmm. And they do not get that stability that the system hopefully would provide. Right. Which can cause a very frustrating and turmoil-filled life. By the later Middle Ages, this exchange of children by urban households was sufficiently commonplace to sustain a system of custodial care that neither removed nor isolated the young from community life. In fact, there was a sense in which the community became a part of the court of orphans, imposing upon the institution requirements that it honor the bequests of parents near death, safeguard legacies, and facilitate the orderly transmission of wealth from one generation to the next. If only. Right. Like, if only we could have that nowadays. (laughs) Of course, this is a false picture if applied to the children of the urban poor. The court services were never available to them, nor did public policy address their needs, emphasizing instead the administrative problems posed by the children inheriting property. So once again, great system in theory for those who could afford it, or who Mm -hmm. were born into it, I should say. By the close of the 14th century, many youths lived apart from parents in the company of employers, tradesmen, and kin. The household structured the work-related experiences of urban apprentices and servants no less carefully than the domestic ties of orphans and wards. So essentially, we had a trend of a closer-knit family structure, which turned into sort of this tradesman guild moving around as the Middle Ages wore on, which you can see in the Renaissance with patrons, apprenticeships, so on and so forth. But a large part of this was from how the legalities of orphans and wardship was set up in the first place, which I think is very notable. And to conclude, for these householders, the needs of orphans were best served by bringing the children into the continuing contact with city officials, neighbors, family, friends, and kin. Together, they ensured that orphans of Burgesses were not a forgotten minority, which is genuinely very cool. Yeah, I'm glad that... I didn't at least, know that. At least some children had legal protections. Yeah. Well, and this doesn't touch on the legal protections that children had, like, again, in those up, in those, I don't want to say upper classes, but like middle upper classes. They, they mm. didn't have the same class system as we do, but. Propertied classes, we could pr- say. There we go. Propertied classes. It doesn't touch on what the propertied classes' rights would have been. But it does touch on that such orphans were not just left by the wayside. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really, really cool and something that writers should take into account 
when they start fantasy stories because it is such a trope that like you know the orphan right. kid goes off and becomes an adventurer and that's great they absolutely should but what happens when you know this 18 year old kid goes off and then next thing you know he comes back he's 21 and he's just inherited an estate oh. how are you gonna deal with that is he even prepared to have an estate what if there's a big feud between his guardian saying no you can't go on an adventure you need education in order to inherit the estate what if the adventure is him learning how to you know maintain that estate or whatever anyway i think there's a lot of fodder there for storytelling dming backstories for pcs like whatever you want to do with it i just love all of this because it it provides a lot of light into a world that is otherwise not thought about or is thought to be very, very dark and brutal, when really there were a bunch of supports in place for orphaned kids. And even the abuses that did exist, those are just as good in terms of inspiration for storytelling as opposed to my parents are dead and now I don't have a place to live. Right. So that's my take on this article. <laughs> All right. Should we go to segments? I think we should. We have the cockatrice egg. We do have the cockatrice egg. Or, well, we have the cockatrice as well. Yes. Cockatrice or basilisk, because they are sometimes mixed up. Yes, that's true. Theoretically, the cockatrice is the one with the rooster parts, and the basilisk is the lizard. Mm -hmm. I always thought that a cockatrice would lay a basilisk egg. That's how I first heard it. It could be. I think the two are very interconnected. They are. Anyway, we do have him. That's pretty cool. Alright, adapting things for D&D. I already touched on a bunch of orphan ideas. <laughs> I think there should be animal trials in D&D and in real life. <laughs> Bring back animal trials. That won't mess up our legal system even more. Well, the way I see it is... We still put animals to death for stuff. Like if a bear breaks into a bunch of houses, like they put the bear down in some cases. Maybe the bear should have a trial. You just brought Harambe back into my mind. <laughs> yeah, Harambe should have had a trial. Harambe should have had a trial. If this was the Middle Ages, we would have had justice for Harambe. I'm just saying, like, if animals can be given the death penalty, animals should also get lawyers. I think this makes sense. Yes. That is why I am coming forward in favor of animal trials in the 21st century. <laughs> Put it back on the ballot. Let's go. Oh my gosh. That would be great in in a D&D &D game. I think it would be really fun for a druid because mm -hmm. so many players are like, well, if I turn into an animal and cause mischief, then I'm not liable for any of the problems. But what if... What if your druid does something when disguised as, like, a dog or a horse or whatever, and whoever they bother decides to sue them as that animal for the damages they caused? Ooh. I mean, first they've got to make to find them, but yeah, that would be fun. Like, to be fair, like, there are so many different summonses that there could just be a public summons for... Yeah. For the dog that did whatever. Yeah, for the horse who kicked my, you know, barrels of wine in and spilled them all over the street, you'd better show up at the courthouse. And then, you know, next thing you know, the druid's like, oh, shit, I gotta show up. And then you have the debate of, do I show up as a horse? Do I show up as a person? And then do I get in even more trouble for impersonating a horse? 
Yeah, because there is fact-finding magic available. Yeah. If the horse doesn't show up, maybe they can scry for the horse and find the druid and go like, oh. Oh, no. And now you're not only being tried, but you're being tried as a horse. (laughs) That would be the coolest thing, though. It would be fun. Like, you pull up your criminal record, you're like, uh, yeah, I was tried as a horse in, uh, (laughs) Donsbrook. Sorry about that. That'd be pretty fun. (laughs) That would be a good thing to have on one's rap sheet. Yeah. Or, you know, just bring back animal trials in other ways. It doesn't have to be the druid. It could be an animal companion. It could be, you know, just some hubbub going on in the area. Maybe instead of slaying the dragon or slaying whatever's in the area, the party is tasked with delivering the summons. Right. You have to serve papers to the manticore. I am here for this. (laughs) Because... In D&D, at least, in 5th edition, dragons are sentient creatures. There are a lot of sentient monsters. Mm-hmm. So what, it, you know, like, okay, um, blue dragon, Grimvorth, uh, the destroyer, you need to appear in uh, Donsbrook on the 3rd of Winterfilleth because you destroyed that guy's crop. That would be excellent. I... I would love for a campaign where the players are process servers. Yeah, they're auditors. (laughs) I love that so much. That should be a class. That needs to be a class. We gotta write this one down. What would it be? Would it just be auditor? I'm not familiar with the legal jargon. I am also not familiar with the legal jargon. Auditor for animal trials. Maybe they are also tasked with doing some of the fact finding, so they have to go out and figure out, like, which animal caused this damage? Yes. Where do we find it now? Exactly. Private investigators. Specifically for beasts or specifically for fiends. Like you specialize. Yeah, like a ranger. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now I've just got the idea of uh, like a, a specialty law office. Mm-hmm. Like, welcome to Balin and Thorin Sons. Uh, please state your complaint and a specialist in that animal field will be with you shortly. I feel like Agent of the Court would be the best, like, general name for this class. Ooh, Agent of the Court. Because you have to assume that, like, dealing with non-humans would be almost standard in D&D law. For sure. So you'd have to have some expertise in it, no matter what branch of law you were involved in. Law and Order, D&D edition. This week. (laughs) I might watch that. That would be amazing. Animal trials in D&D. I think it needs to happen. I think we have a class for it. Yeah, and of course, we could also, as as the GM, you can say, yes, the gods really will make the weevils move from this area to that area if you do it properly. That w- That is real. In this world, that works. This is the kind of consequences for your actions I like in my D&D. <laughs> That's right. You can't just... You can't just what if you're in a fight and you, like, cast Bane on the Manticore, and next thing you know, the Manticore is suing you? <sighs> Legal and illegal spells. Yes. What are the legalities around your spell casting? Is it different in different cities? What would that even look like? Is there a certain area? Like, are there, are there um, privatized and non-privatized things? Like, what if you go into a business and they're like, yeah, we, ref- we refuse to serve anyone who does magic in our shop just because it causes so much problems? Is that legal? Is that legal? Can you do that? That's pretty dope. Anyone who's listening to this and is a lawyer, you should totally make that campaign world. (laughs) 
or just inform us about it so we can do it. Come on the Discord. Give us some yes. fodder here. I am hyped for this. I like this idea. Yeah. We've got a couple of classes. We should put together that class book we've been talking about. Yeah, the only one I remember is the Blood Witch. We've got the Blood Page. I think we've come up with a couple other ones. But I, Yeah, I know we've was, come up with a couple. Was, That's the only one I can remember off the top of my head. I think I wrote them down. Good. If anybody else can remember, please please let us know. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have it written down somewhere, but we are genuinely working on collecting all of these things and publishing them in a way that you guys can access and actually play. It just takes a lot of time because we're both, you know, working full time and also producing the podcast and also doing this in our, I won't say free time because I don't think either one of us has free time, but not really the rest of our time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's part of our super secret special project that we are working on in the background. Yes. So yes. But yeah, that's a good class. We'll have to bring that one in. Oh man, anything else? Mm. Well, you could use Diodand as a part of your law. The thing where if an inanimate object causes harm, it becomes forfeit to the state to do something. There you go. Try and that's good. That's also for Dungeon Master's Dictionary. We'll just put that in yes. right here. Diodand. Yes. Which I may be pronouncing wrong, because I think it's French. That's fair. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? Modern culture. In states unborn and acted We don't have animal trials anymore. No. We do have, like, custody law and protections for orphans. Some of which, I assume, are based on the same systems that were being used in England in back then. In medieval England, absolutely, because so much of the U.S. government is based on, you know, English law. Yeah, so if you live in the United Kingdom or in America or in probably, I assume, Canada or other parts of the uh, Commonwealth, mm -hmm. then, yeah, there's probably some aspect of those laws still encoded in your own. Yeah, there we go. Street smarts! Lessons from this text. Know your rights. Yes. If you or a loved one has been harmed by an animal of any kind, whether magical or mundane, Please contact your local lawyers, find an advocate that works for you, and protect yourself and your family against the animals that have harmed you. Bring an animal trial into your hometown. That is excellent street smarts. Things that seem strange to us about the medieval period are actually completely internally consistent if you look at them in the right way. Yes. For the most part, there's still some stuff that's just crazy Yes. But a lot of it has an internal logical consistency to it that we've just lost over time. If you see people doing stuff that doesn't make sense to you, consider it might make sense to them. Yeah. And maybe you're the problem. Maybe you should have animal trials. Maybe you should have animal trials. I also think, and I'm just going to say it again, street smarts. People in the Middle Ages did not get married when they were teenagers. They knew that being a child was a separate stage of life. Those are dramatic things. Like William Shakespeare wrote a play about teenagers getting married because it was crazy. That's why he did it. Okay. And rant. I'm good. All right. <laughs> I just need to say it again. All right. And also, you can just put this anywhere you want. Fun fact for cocktail parties. The legal age of adulthood in medieval England in the 1300s was 21. It has gone down. That is wild to me. It's gone down. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, it's now the age at which you buy cigarettes and alcohol in the U.S., but yeah. You can federally buy alcohol at 18? No, 21. Oh, 21. I was going to say, wait a minute. When did that come into play? No, the no, change 21. is that they moved cigarettes from 18 to 21. That's right. That's right. Welcome 
to the Leech's Corner. Here's a good, short, but weird leechdom. This is from Leech Book 3. In case a man be lunatic... Strong start. Take skin of a mere swine, which according to my footnote is a porpoise. Okay. Work it into a whip. Almost had a spit take on that one. Are we about to whip a lunatic with Yes, swinge the man therewith. Soon he will be well. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And that's Um, the whole thing. mm, uh, What makes the skin of a porpoise cure insanity? Or is it just really good material for a whip? Like, I have to assume there's some kind of sense to it. Like, I don't think there is. I think it's just good <laughs> material for a whip. It's like a nice leather. It's waterproof. I mean, we don't often make things out of porpoise leather, so I, I assume it can't be that good. I don't know. I'm going to regret Google. Porpoise skin used to be leather of choice for falconers' jessies, but since the Marine Mammal Protection Act, it's become illegal in the U.S. All right, so it's apparently it, it is good for something. Fascinating. Anyway... I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. Anyway, I think it's just probably a good leather for making a whip. I don't know. I thought maybe they were like, ah, these porpoises, they seem like insane animals. So if you whip him with porpoise hide, the insanity cancels each other out or it draws out the insanity into the porpoise whip. I don't or know. Some, some logic like that. Okay. Yeah, actually, it was very popular to be used as leather because I know that seal skin is still used in native communities. But apparently whale whale and porpoise absolutely is. That makes sense. You know, now that I think of it, like I would have I'm not surprised that you use whale hide for stuff, and I guess porpoise fits into that. It's because it's rubbery. It's springy. It snaps. Uh, oh, I guess that would make it would that make it a good whip? I think it would make it a good whip. Okay. Alright. Interesting. I think we have to say that this is one that you should not try. Yes, please don't try this one. Also, Lunatic is not a great word for people who are struggling mentally with different things. So let's just let's just put this one on the shelf and yes. leave it there. We can look at it for its absurdity and perhaps its own lunacy, but not for anything else. Yes, it is. We will leave it on the shelf. We'll leave it over there. Unlike That's the wild. toothworms, which we will reference at any given possible ad infinitum. Yes. That's wild that their solution was just like, make a whip and beat the guy. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And with that, listeners, amen. (laughs) There is nothing more. Yes. Oh, man. I I genuinely think that's all we have. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I'm out. Yeah, so once again, please, if you have any ideas, if this sparked any ideas, if you just want to have a laugh with us and take the piss, please come join the Discord. Come follow us on social media. If you like our weird, wacky shit, you know, consider supporting us on Patreon. Whatever you so desire. We love all of you. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky-related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. 
We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Food. Did cover food? We didn't cover food. I mean, except for weevil food. Yes. And pig food. And pig... Mm. <laughs> children. <laughs> I'm not putting children on the kitchen table list. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> no. <laughs> that one's vetoed. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>